Better if a guy needed to get a stolen base got a stolen base. Because that would be huge. Shaw stolen base. Shaw stolen base. I just got a I just got a text message. Travis Shaw just stole a base. What is he doing stealing a base? Travis Shaw just stole a base. Travis Shaw just stole a base. Yes. He just stole a base. That is huge. That's 0.5 increase. I am now up by... I should be up by one. Um, this is... Uh, that is phenomenal. Uh, really, um, really remarkable. All right. Travis Shaw, out of nowhere, steals a base. I mean, he's stolen a couple bases, but... Uh, this is sweet. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of the Bat Flip Crazy Podcast where you'll always find enthusiastic data-driven fantasy baseball analysis. I am your host, Toby. That audio you just heard is from Sunday. Uh, I was thinking it would be a cool idea to record a podcast of the last few innings um, of what was supposed to be the last day of the season. It didn't end up being that way, but had a number of leagues, especially my two to my kind of key leagues for the year that were hanging in the balance. And there was a lot going on, and I thought it might be cool to just record kind of as I uh, as I was looking at the box scores and tracking all of the data that was coming in. Uh, as you'd expect, it didn't it didn't turn out uh, that great, but there was a couple of uh, of uh, little snippets that, I think we're uh, we're pretty cool, and that Travis Shaw stolen base is definitely one that will kind of stick in my memory. I ended up holding out um, after game one sixty three uh, to win the league um, by one point, which was delivered by both Travis Shaw's stolen bases and uh, Rich Hill's magnificent outing on Sunday. So these are the moments that we obviously play for. I hope. Uh, you all listening had your own moments of kind of pure unbridled joy as you celebrated victory. I know there was also probably some uh, depressing moments of defeat, but, um, you know, playing, you know, last day of the season, everything on the line, you know, that is, uh, that is a ton of fun. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it um, this year. Had a little bit of uh, my own heartbreak ended up finishing um, tied for first in TGFBI. Uh, I was lucky to tie for first, to be honest with you, but there was a point in the day where I took a 0.5 uh, point lead uh, in TGFBI, and literally it came down to a Kirby Yates strikeout of Nick Ahmed on a 3-2 pitch with two outs in the top of the ninth inning, um, gave uh, the person that I was going up against uh, 0.5 points in Ks uh, that ended up tying it up. So a good result overall, definitely a fair result. Uh, Brant Chester from uh, Baseball HQ was was the guy that I was going up against. He had a phenomenal squad. I really was um, put together a great last couple weeks and a last day. Everything kind of went went my way, but um, that was fun and and somewhat excruciating after uh, feeling the joy of going up there. But um, overall, uh, things ended up going well. I won four out of my eight leagues, which is uh, which I'm really happy about. Um, my worst finish was fourth, so felt good overall about how the season went. 
I'll do a breakdown uh, at some other point in time, maybe next week of the leagues, just kind of uh, what what I was thinking heading into them, how they ended up working out, what were some key to, key decisions that either helped or hurt me along the way. I think it's always helpful to do that type of analysis. Speaking of which, in today's podcast, I'm going to go back and look at preseason bold predictions to see what went right in those predictions. There were 12 of them and what went wrong. The goal, as always, um, is to learn and improve. You know, you want to be right on these, but I think going back and looking over them, you can notice some trends in your analysis. You can identify some biases, which is something um, that I was, um, I definitely took away from this year. Um, and so we'll take a look at, at how I did on those. Um, and hopefully next year, uh, next year I'll continue to improve. Anyways, uh, as always, you can find the podcast on iTunes and a number of other podcast platforms. If you like what you're hearing, definitely go give us a five-star rating and write a nice review. Tell your friends. Uh, we're a small little podcast. It's just me uh, rocking it out with uh, frequent help from, from guests. And so anything you can do, writing a review, giving a rating, is super helpful in helping other people learn about the podcast. Um, so if you find value in it, definitely do that. As always, a shout out to folks who have already given us a five-star rating um, and review. You can follow me on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. I also have an Instagram, Facebook, blog, BatFlipCrazy.com, and a YouTube channel where I try to put up some videos showing some of the process uh, behind analysis that I'm doing. Um, so definitely check that out if you have a chance. That's enough uh, of that for an intro. Let's get this party started. All right, up first with the bold predictions um, is actually a repeat of my one successful bold prediction from last year, which is that Shinsu Chu at ADP of 256 was going to outproduce his teammate Rugnet Odor, who had an ADP of 103 for the second consecutive year. Uh, the reason why um, I went with this prediction, number one, it had been successful already, and you know, the ADPs, there was still a huge gap in the ADPs. And really, you know, when healthy Chu, at least entering this year, um, had always produced, you know, about four and a half categories of fantasy value. You know, his batting average is around league average, maybe a little above that. Um, he's always got a great OBP, solid runs, 20, you know, low 20, low to mid 20s power, decent number of RBI and double digit steals, at least before this season. Um, and really his approach at the plate is incredibly strong. He's got great plate discipline, you know, decent contact skills, nice little hard hit rate. And the expected stats from last year supported his production. Um, and really, you know, I was very confident that he would provide some value late in the ADP and that he would also outproduce um, Odor, despite the, diff the, the ADP gap. Um, I'd also, you know, in my studying of Rugnit Odor, had developed an aversion to him because of the weak plate discipline that he showed throughout his career and really a terrible batted ball profile. I joked around that he had, uh, you know, kind of a recipe for a disaster when it came to BABIP because he had a high fly ball rate, high infield fly ball rate, you know, so a pretty much an automatic out. He's never had a high line drive rate, anything approaching, you know, a league average line drive rate. 
And so, and he also didn't have particularly good metrics when it came to the power. He's definitely hit for power in the past, but you know, the underlying metrics don't really support it that much. You know, when you look at his barrels per plate appearance, and then when you look at his hard hit rate, it doesn't jump out you uh, out at you as being particularly special. So I ended up getting this prediction right, though it was much closer than I anticipated at the midpoint in the season. Chu finished the year, and I, I wrote about this in my article, you know, ahead of time that I'd use the ESPN Player Raider um, to determine who finished ahead of who um, in all of my uh, predictions. And Chu finished at 147, and Odor finished at 156. So it was close, but obviously Chu provided a ton more value. The midpoint of the season, it really looked like a runaway victory, uh, but Chu crashed at the same time that Odor really turned it on. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I think one thing that I'm that I'm learning more and more is just the need to follow the skills and to look at the skills and make sure that you're not developing biases against particular players. And, you know, I was a little proud of myself because at the mid midpoint of the year for my second half hitters, I, I included him in the kind of on the fence category, but I included Rugnit Ordor as somebody whose skills were pointing towards a strong second half. And that actually ended up being the case. So that felt pretty good because even though I had predicted Chu would, would outproduce him, um, you know, I was still able to kind of put that to the side and, um, and see that there was something good happening with Odor, at least for two months. He kind of faded down the stretch. But maybe that's a good uh, sign of good things to come. It'll be really interesting to see where Odor's ADP ends up next year, whether folks are going to believe that two-month sample that we got of just you know, elite production versus what we saw the rest of the year. You know, in general, the this prediction really just highlights my my preference for a strong approach at the plate. I love guys with great discipline, low um, O swings or chase rates on um, pitches outside the zone. And Odor's profile is just very volatile um, because of the approach. And so nine times out of 10, I'm going to go with that more balanced approach. In some instances like this, it'll it'll benefit me. And in others, as I'll get to in a little bit when I talk about my Javier Baez prediction, um, it'll hurt hit me. But, you know, the, the, the lesson still holds that old and boring uh, is definitely a good way to get value uh, in your draft. So, so far, one for one on the bold predictions. My second bold prediction was not as successful, and that was that Yasiel Puig... Uh, was going to be a top 15 outfielder with a 280 batting average, 30 home runs, 15 stolen bases, and a combined 200 runs in RBI. He was going around 110 of ADP heading into the year. He finished the season as the 36th ranked outfielder, so definitely missed on that top 15 uh, prediction, and the 119th best overall player with a 267 batting average, 60 runs, 63 RBIs, so 123 combined, almost 80 short of my prediction, 23 home runs, and 15 stolen bases. So I got reasonably close uh, there, and that, ha- that took place in 444 plate appearances. The bold prediction died pretty quickly, to be honest with you. Puig had a horrible start to the year, started out super slow, and then he hit the DL, for um, for about two weeks, 
Um, despite yeah, you know, the poor start and what ended up being two DL stints and then being on the strong side of the platoon after the trade deadline where he was only, even though he's a right-handed batter, he was only being played against right-handed pitchers because he really struggled this year against lefties. That's actually something that's historically been a problem for Puig and something to monitor moving forward. He did manage decent production and he didn't really hurt fantasy owners too much, which made me feel better about the prediction. I never want to predict that a guy who costs a decent amount, and 180p is a decent amount, is going to be something special and have them end up being total uh, total garbage. And he wasn't. You know, the 23 home runs, the 15 stolen bases definitely helped. When he was playing, if you had him in the lineup, he was definitely helping uh, you out. He did finish nine points under or nine places under his ADP as the 119th best player. So, you know, you lost a little bit of value, but hopefully uh, nothing too bad. And you were able to swap in folks while he was out of the lineup um, to make up a little bit of that. And those 15 stolen bases and the, the 23 home runs, you know, when you extrapolate that 444 plate appearances to 600 plate appearances, you know, that's a 267, 81 runs, 31 home runs, 85 RBI, 20 stolen bases. So 31, 20, um, which is terrific. Um, so, you know, and we, we also continued to see some improvements in both contact and quality of contact, including a 7.7% barrels per plate appearance this year, which was 41st best in baseball. So I think the ingredients are still there for Puig to have. A monster year, or at least a very, very good year. And, you know, uh, whether that happens next year or not, you know, he's definitely a guy I'm going to have my eye on. I think he'll fall a little bit in the ADP. I think in the early mock drafts, he was in the 120 range. So about, you know, 10 to 20 spots below where he was going in his ADP last year. I still think there's something special uh, with Puig that's kind of lurking there. You see that with the extrapolated numbers. So hopefully he gets a little bit of m- more of an opportunity, continues to improve next year, and we we get the breakout that that uh, I've been looking at. But uh, either way, it ended up being a, a failed prediction on my part for the player who I own the most shares of, at least from an offensive player standpoint, this year. So one out of two bold predictions uh, thus far. The third bold prediction was that Corey Kniebel loses the closer role in Milwaukee by June and has an ERA over five for the season. I'm going to give myself 0.5, so half a point for this prediction. Kniebel did lose the full-time closer role by June. It was because of injury, but he did struggle a lot uh, very early on. He did lose the job later in the season due to performance, and he even got sent down to the minors. Uh, he did end up with a 3.58 um, ERA overall, and that's because when he came back from the minors, he was lights out, uh, pitching 16 and a third innings of shutout ball um, in the last month of the season, uh, which definitely um, you know helped uh, helped him get down under that five ERA that I was predicting for the season. So. Uh, I was accurate in predicting his demise as a closer and that he'd get a limited number of saves, but I did miss the ERA projection, so I'm going to give myself a half point there. I think the reason overall for 
for not liking Kniebel, which I laid out in my article. So, you know, definitely check out the article if you do have a chance because I lay out you know, why I did each prediction. You know, Kniebel's skills really didn't support what he did last year. He had a very strong swinging strike rate, but not a stringing, swinging strike rate that supported an astronomic 50%, uh, 40% K rate last year. He had very poor control metrics and a 92% strand rate, something that didn't seem sustainable to me. And he was going so high in drafts. I think he was going around you know, 60, 70, 80p as, as the second closer off the board, maybe second, third closer off the board. Um, which was really just too much to invest in, in, in what I saw from a skill perspective. So I was expecting some regression, and that actually happened. The good news for folks uh, for next year, potentially, um, you know, the Brewers obviously have a lot of options, but Knievel did show overall across the season improved skills, uh, particularly in, in control metrics. His first pitch strike rate was better. His zone percentage was better. And as a result, his walk percentage was lower, um, which was great. And he did have a very high K rate again. So maybe that um, maybe that K rate is sustainable despite not having a swinging strike rate that that you'd expect for it. Um, generally speaking, you know my my lack of interest in Knievel heading into this year, outside of the skills, generally I don't like to spend very high draft picks on closers. Um, there's a lot of volatility in the position. Jeff Zimmerman has done some great research on this about the percentage of closers who hold the role throughout the year. And it's a very low percentage. I want to say it's like 30, 40%, something like that. So there's a lot of volatility at the position as we've seen, you know, this year with Knievel and others. Um, and so what I really like to do is I like to wait until after, you know, it doesn't have to be after the 100th pick of the draft, but looking at somebody who ha- who seems to have a lot of job security in the role so they can kind of overcome some bumps and, bumps and bruises along the way, but, and that also has some solid skills. So I like to draft one, one closer normally, at least in 15-team leagues, that, uh, that has kind of solid skills, um, and the uh, what looks like some pretty good job security, and then get somebody t- more towards the back end of closers, you know, maybe somebody that has a little less job security but strong skills who I think can win the role, somebody who has the job, um, you know, in decent skills or maybe had a down year the year before, and then take some flyers on guys who are in the running for jobs or, you know, high-skilled uh, setup guys. Um, heading into the season and hope to get uh, some saves out of those guys. So overall, that's kind of the general thought process in being down on Kniebel this year, both in terms of value at his ADP and also just the skills that I didn't like. So after three bold predictions, I've got one and a half out of three correct. Bold prediction number four was that Eddie Rosario would hit 35 home runs and drive in 115 RBI. Uh, this did not come to fruition despite his stellar uh, first uh, half of the season. He finished up at 288 with 87 runs, 24 home runs, 77 RBI, and 8 stolen bases. He started off really hot, uh, 311, 64 runs, 19 home runs, 60 RBIs, and 6 stolen bases in the first half, though that was 401 plate appearances and actually reflects 
you know, a, a decent amount of time where he wasn't performing well. I mean, he shot out of the gates um, and was making me look good for a little while before kind of falling off. I based this uh, this prediction on Rosario's stellar second half of last year. It was really expecting him to uh, replicate what he did in the second half last year over the full year this year. You know, last year he saw some plate discipline improvements as well as improvements in contact and hard contact. Um, he, he also had a, a, a nice fly ball rate. I also liked the OBP of the, of the front end of the, the Twins lineup with Joe Maurer, Brian, Brian Dozier, and Miguel Sano. Um, you know, batting in front of Rosario, it, it gave me the sense that he'd have a lot of RBI opportunities, and I was confident that he'd, he'd bat either cleanup or fifth. Uh, in that lineup. After the very hard, hot start, though, he did cool off. You know, what exactly happened, I'm not really sure. His plate discipline, uh, you know, it, it wasn't very good to begin with throughout the year, but it deteriorated um, a lot, um, as did his hard hit rate. You know, it may have been that plate discipline drop that did him in over his last 70 games. He had a 47.2% O swing. So that's atrocious. That's essentially he swung out at um, half of the balls, half of pitches outside the zone. When you think about how many of those pitches were probably not even close to the strike zone, um, it just gives you a sense of just how non-selective he was with the pitches that he was swinging at. Definitely could have also been injury. Uh, Brian Slack, a great uh, fantasy baseball player, he's at that underscore GLG20 on Twitter. He had a tweet. Uh, you know, I think back in August, showing that Rosario was scratched uh, due to shoulder discomfort on June 21st, and that after that, his production plummeted. So it definitely could have been an injury. You know, my guess is it's probably both. Um, you know, he gets an injury to his shoulder. It's impacting his swing. It's just impacting his overall approach at the plate, his power. And then it results in a clear drop in skills, you know, the hard hit rate being tied to that, but then the lack of plate discipline probably meaning that he's either pressing or just doesn't feel as comfortable at the plate. Either way, doesn't matter. The prediction was wrong. Um, the good news, though, is that, you know, he was going around 120 ADP heading into this year, and he definitely brought value to fantasy owners who, um, who stuck with him. He finished as the 72nd best player, uh, this year, according to the ESPN player rater, so a really good chunk of value there from him. Still, a loss is a loss, so I am 1.5 out of my four bold predictions so far. Uh, the next bold prediction, bold prediction number five, was Whit Merrifield goes 25-40. 25 home runs and 40 stolen bases. Whit was one of my favorite guys heading into this year. Um, despite having elite production last year, he a lot of people didn't buy the hype, um, and he was going around, you know, as early as kind of mid-50s, but mostly in the 60s, maybe early 70s and ADP in most drafts. I really loved what I saw when I dove in last year. The XStat supported his power. Um, he was right in line uh, between his home runs and expected home runs. They also supported his batting average, and he stole 26 bases in the second half, which was uh, awesome. And that actually was pretty good foreshadowing of this year's second half surge in stolen bases, where both he and Adalberto Mondesi were just stealing bases 
like crazy uh, in the second half. In addition to this, heading into this year, you know, looking back at last year, he was, uh, I joked around that he was the king of launch angles because he had the highest volume of balls hit at good launch angles. So, you know, like your, um, your 10 to 26 uh, degree launch angles, um, you know, just line drives, really solid uh, fly balls, your kind of hard drives as X, X stats calls them. And so um, having the highest volume of those in the second half, he led folks like Joey Votto. And so I really liked what I saw. You know, my really only only disappointment with Wit, and this goes more broadly and is definitely something that I'm going to try to learn from this offseason, is I, I conducted my analysis, my deep analysis last year, just too late in the game. You know, even into March, I was still, you know, diving deep into players, and that really cost me. So in some of my earlier drafts like TGFBI, um, the experts leagues, um, I, you know, I missed out on him and Tommy Pham, who were two players that in doing deep dives, I, I identified as guys that I really liked who were going in kind of the 50, 60, 70 ADP range and who I ended up getting in a lot of my later drafts. So that was a little bit of a disappointment lesson learned there. I'm going to, going to give myself, um, you know, uh, Merrifield only hit 12 home runs this year, so he didn't hit the 25. He did nail the 40 stolen bases. He led the league with 45 stolen bases. So I'm going to give myself a half point again for this prediction um, because of that. You know, with the power, I don't feel so bad about missing out on that. And that's because I feel like Witt is one of the guys who is really hurt by the dejuicing of the baseball. If you look at the number of home runs that were hit this year, it dropped uh, dramatically. And even in even in uh, April, uh, Rob Arthur, who did um, a lot of the research around the juiced ball, um, also into, uh, wrote a piece about how the ball seemed to be de-juiced. De and I think that was the case this year. And Merrifield's one of these guys who I think benefited from the juiced ball with getting those 19 home runs. He earned them in X stats because, you know, the ball was juiced and uh, expected stats were based on that. But um, this year it wasn't, and so I think you saw a drop in home run production um, there as a result. Still, though, those 45 stolen bases led all of baseball, and he ended up this year as the 15th best player in the ESPN Player Raider. He gave you 700-plus plate appearances of great batting average, all of those stolen bases, decent amount of runs, okay RBI, you know, 88 runs, I think, around 60 RBI, those 12 home runs, but he helped you out in the two hardest categories in 5x5 five five Roto, uh, at least with batting average this year. In my prediction, um, I proclaimed, after it's all said and done, Witt will be a second-round pick come 2019 drafts after producing top 15 value overall in 2018. So he did provide that top 15 value. Whether he's a second-round pick, I don't think he'll probably be there um, in 15-team drafts. I think he'll probably go in the third round. I think you'll probably see him going you know, between 30 and 40 um, in ADP. So uh, third-rounder uh, in 15-team drafts around the 3-4 turn um, in 12-team drafts. So you know, I really wish I could give myself a full, full one uh, on this prediction, but I can't, uh, because a prediction's a prediction. So, uh, with that half point, I'm now up to two out of five bold predictions. 
Next up is bold prediction number six, my most painful prediction. Uh, Javier Baez finishes the season outside the top 250. Ouch. Uh, this one was, uh, was wrong. <laughs> um, you know, this is one of those predictions, you know, it, it happens from time to time, but I was totally, totally off on this one. Um, the, the logic behind it was, was, you know, Baez last year, the expected stats did not support what he was able to do last year. Uh, he got, he got lucky, uh, according to expected stats. He also had some of the worst plate, plate discipline uh, in the league, and his contact metrics were not good. And so heading into this season with folks like Ian Happ kind of creating a, um, a crowded infield, I thought that Baez, if he started out slowly, would be relegated to the bench um, for a lot of the season, and so went with that outside the top uh, 250. Uh, I, was, I was very wrong. Um, the good thing about missing uh, this badly is that I think there's, it presents important learning opportunities. You know, generally speaking, I shy away from players with poor plate discipline, like Baez has. Um, I'm somebody who loves process, and so when players um, aren't showing the process or they're not showing the skills in this instance that um that i like to see then uh, you know a lot of times i'll write them off um and i won't look for the potential value right there are some situations like i I own joey gallo in a league you know you kind of know what you're getting from gallo he doesn't have uh, his play discipline was pretty good his contact skills were terrible but you knew that you were going to get power and you could kind of build around it um so so a guy like that i might not shy away from but you're kind of Javi Baez, um, uh, kind of poor plate discipline guys are folks that I've, I've generally shied away from. And, you know, I think this is a, this is a weakness um, as an analyst. I think, you know, Baez in particular, um, you know, number one, I ignored the speed. Uh, Baez has always been somebody with enough speed to produce value. And in today's context of very few stolen bases. Uh, I definitely didn't factor that in enough in the equation, right? If he had hit, you know, just 15 home runs and stolen 10 bases, there's a lot of value there, and he's not likely to finish outside the top 250. So, um, you know, that that's something. Um, you know, but I think having that type of a bias um, about a bias about bias um, and you know, poor plate discipline guys in average leagues, there are folks who have been and will continue to be successful without good plate discipline. I mean, Eddie Rosario is a guy, is an example of somebody who was successful this year with poor plate discipline. Uh, Avisail Garcia last year thrived with one of the worst O swings because when he made contact, he made quality contact and he had a good batting average. So if you're in a batting average league, you know, and somebody has shown the skill to um, make enough contact and enough quality of contact to produce a decent batting average, then, you know, you need to consider whether that, whether that player is going to provide you with some value. In the example of Baez that I gave, a guy with stolen bases and power, even though he may not have the, the best approach at the plate, that is going to bring value as well. There's only so many 
players with that tool. And so I think that's one thing that this is being so off on bias has helped highlight for me is that one of my weaknesses or my biases as an analyst is that I'll, I'll sometimes misvalue because uh, of, you know, a desire to see the type of skills in terms of plate discipline um, that, um, you know, that I like. And there are things that go along with not having good plate discipline, right? You're likely going to have a lot more ups and downs, a less stable profile, a little bit less consistency, but that doesn't mean that there isn't value. And you always need to be looking for value and being open to um, and willing to take advantage of value because that's how you're going to win your league. And and I think my my pick on, on Baez represented that. I think the process was okay in terms of, you know, kind of the chain of events that would lead to it, but I definitely missed some some major pieces. So that, that's a, that's an issue. Um, I definitely will say though, you know, one good thing about having such a, um, you know, uh, focusing so much on plate discipline is that it will help you out in one department and that's, and that's definitely runs. And sort of that point, you know, in my eight leagues this year, I finished first in runs in, in, uh, six of the eight leagues. And then I had one fifth place finish in runs. I was only 60 runs back. So, not 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 terrible, and then um, I did finish second in my twenty team dynasty uh, league in runs, uh, and in TGFBI I finished second out of one hundred ninety five teams. So there are some benefits to focusing on plate discipline, but if you were to look at those teams, there was probably some room to lose some runs um, and gain in other categories that folks could have helped me out on. And so again, you know, I think we always need to be challenging some of our biases that we have in the game and, and, and looking at, you know, projections and looking at potential value in players, regardless of what that profile looks like, if there are reasons to believe that it's there and Baez and others have definitely shown that to be the case. Um, and a guy next heading into next year that I'm definitely looking at who falls in a similar category category is Avisail Garcia. I think he'll probably, he was around 280p this year, despite his really good year in 2017. I think he'll fall a little bit even more. And I think there's some really good signs from him um, that I'll certainly address in the off season. And, and maybe he'll even show up in my bold predictions next year. Uh, another thing that I le- learned on a more micro level was I used to look at swinging strike rate for hitters a lot. And Baez actually in the second half last year had a worse string- swinging strike rate than Joey Gallo did, which is saying something. But you know, what I hadn't really thought about was that swinging strike rate is based on pitches. So it's the number of pitches that you swing and miss at um, out of all the pitches that are thrown. So it includes balls and situations where you didn't swing, whereas contact and Z contact look at pitches that you swung at and missed. And so guys that have really high swing percentages are naturally going to have very high swinging strike rates. And so at the extremes, you really miss out on the fact that somebody may not have atrocious contact skills. Like Javi Baez doesn't have good contact skills, but his Z contact does hover around 80. 85.5% was major league average this year. So it's not terrible. So he is hitting pitches in a decent amount when he does uh, swing at them in the zone. And so the swinging strike rate was a bad indicator to look at. I should have been looking at contact rates, should have been looking at Z contact. um, And I think that would have helped me. And that's something that I do now. And I'm definitely one of those annoying people on Twitter who, you know, if I'm friendly with somebody and I see them posting swinging strike rates of hitters, 
you know, I may chime in and say, hey, you know, but what about the contact rate? Because that may not be the best indicator. Anyways, that's something to think about. Um, you know, something I addressed on a podcast a while back. I think it was like one of the first podcasts I did that was about plate, plate discipline metrics. Anyways, long story short, missed out on the Javi Baez prediction. That is a two, uh, two out of six so far on the bold predictions. Bold prediction number seven was that Yadier Molina uh, was going to finish the season as a number three catcher. Uh, I loved Molina heading into the season. Um, last year in the second half, he showed a jump in power that was supported by expected stats and his skill, dro- skill growth. Um, and what, was, what I particularly loved is that he was able to increase his hard hit rate and his hard hit fly ball rate, uh, as well as his fly ball rate overall, without sacrificing too much contact. He sacrificed a little bit, but not enough to impact him too much. Um, and so, you know, I saw that and I saw him him batting in what I thought was going to be an amazing Cardinals lineup, just the OBPs at the front end of the lineup with Fowler and Carpenter and Pham and um, Ozuna coming in as the cleanup hitter. There just seemed like there was so much there to love. and It didn't end up working out, but I thought he'd get a ton of, He'd hit for a decent amount of power, solid batting average as usual, steal a few bases, and then get a ton of RBIs. Um, and so this is going to be a full win. Uh, he, Molina finished in, as the number two catcher, um, despite missing some time, a couple, couple periods in the season with some injuries. His final line was 261, 55 runs, 20 home runs, 74 RBI, and four stolen bases. Something that's important to note for next year uh, Molina actually got unlucky this year, despite his um, strong performance, his number two catcher performance. According to XStats, he hit 263 this year, but his expected average was 300. So he was really making a lot of excellent contact, and he wasn't necessarily seeing as many rewards as he should have. And that's definitely something that you should keep in mind for next year is I wouldn't even necessarily think of this as kind of peak Molina. I think there's actually the potential for more. He does. He is going to add another year there, but he continued to hit throughout the year, and um, he's a guy that I'll be having close to my uh, the top of my catcher rankings. And I think his age will impact his ADP, and it won't change too much. I think he was going around 150 ADP this year, so definitely somebody to be on the lookout. He'd make a very good uh, catcher one next year. So that's three out of seven predictions so far, which is solid. I'm already two ahead of where I finished last year, where I was one out of 10. Um, so the percentage is much better so far uh, as well. Uh, bold prediction number eight was that Kyle Hendricks uh, would finish with um, his second sub 250 ERA and a career high in strikeouts. Um, I made this prediction because in the second half of last year, Hendricks uh, pitched really well. He had a very, uh, for him at least, a high strikeout rate. I believe it was above eight per nine, um, and he just pitched really well. He seemed to um, improve after a first uh, struggled in the first half. But uh, what we've learned is that Kyle Hendricks is a second-half pitcher. Uh, he struggled again. Uh, for the whole first half and the beginning of the second half of the season, really, before finishing with a flourish, he posted a 179 ERA and a .92 whip in 40.1 innings pitched in September, which probably helped a lot of uh, players, at least in head-to-head and even in Roto, uh, to some championships. In the second half, 
His numbers were still great, um, helped out a lot by that strong September, 284 ERA, a 1.08 whip, and he struck out um, nearly eight batters per nine at 7.9, two strikeouts uh, per nine. Uh, Still, the final line is a loss, 344 ERA, 115 whip, 161 Ks, uh, so he fell almost a, a, a full run um, away from my ERA prediction and 10K short of his career high. And that was mostly because he pitched a career high of 199 innings pitched. Um, it's a loss on the scoreboard, but I do feel okay about the pick. In hindsight, you know, Hendricks was going in the 80s uh, for his ADP, if not a little bit later. I think he was, he had a, uh, there's a little bit of variation there. I think he was kind of mid 80s to, uh, you know, uh, to 105 ADP. And he finishes the 81st most valuable player, according to ESPN Player Rater. So the prediction failed, but thankfully uh, nobody lost a huge amount of value with Hendricks, who paid attention to that prediction or used that to um, help in any way in determining whether to draft him. So I feel a little bit better about that, even though he didn't hit the prediction. But in the end, it's three out of eight being correct so far. Bold prediction number nine was that Matt Carpenter would score 100 runs and drive in 100 RBI. At the beginning of the season, this was probably looking pretty foolish, but um, it ends up being another bold prediction where, you know, generally I was on the right track, but couldn't quite finish the job. Um, Heading into the season, I loved Carpenter going at close to 200 um, at his ADP. Again, he was, I think he was like 165 to like 195 in his ADP. I can't remember where it ended up being, but he was kind of in this group of first basemen that included uh, Carlos Santana and Josh Bell. Um, he, he had a lot of injuries last year, and what I really liked about Carpenter is last year he struggled because he really went too far um, with his launch angle. It was too high. He was hitting too many balls um, above 40 degrees. Uh, launch angle, which results in really easy fly balls and and not a lot of homers. Um, And so he gave this interview during the spring where he really identified this. He didn't use the same language. He actually used some pretty bad language just about, oh, I was selling out for home runs. I want to get a higher batting average. Essentially, he wanted to hit more line drives. But what it told me was that he wanted to lower his launch angle. And that's something that would be really good. Um, And that's exactly what he did. He finished among the league leaders on xstats.org's hard drive percentage. So that's kind of your high line drive, low fly balls, which are which oftentimes go for extra base hits and home runs. Um, he had a 20, 21.6% of his batted balls were hard drives, and that's exactly double the league average of 10.8%. So that's one of the, one of the major reasons why Carpenter was so successful this year. Um, he finished the season with a career year. He had 111 runs, so he got that part of my prediction but only 81 RBI. He was the leadoff hitter and 36 home runs. Um, if you followed my advice and drafted him um, and then held on to him um, after his early season struggles, um, I had a couple posts in early May where I kind of said, look, his, his contact rate is rebounding. I definitely hold on to him. There could be something good here. And he was also way underperforming his expected stats. Um, you know, uh, you you would have made a significant profit. I mean, he finished, uh, I don't know exactly where he finished. Uh, I didn't look where he finished in the ESPN player rater. Um, uh, but 
uh, it was way up there and going at the ADP that he did, um, he got you a lot of, uh, a ton of value. Um, so, um, so that is Matt Carpenter. That's a half point, uh, uh, for the runs that I got successfully, but no half point for the RBI. You know, if he would have batted third, maybe he gets those RBIs, but can't count that. So that's three and a half out of nine um, when it comes to Carpenter. Uh, bold prediction number 10 was that Dominic Leone and Brad Boxberger would combine for 65 saves. Um, this uh, this one, uh, you know, this represents, a, you know, there's, this is kind of the area where some of my predictions definitely went awry. Actually, my last three are, are not so hot. Um, so, uh, you know, I think with this and one other one, I focused a little bit too much on, on closers and saves. So folks, you know, a situation where, uh, the predictions were based on role and not necessarily skills or their production. Um, you know, and that's what was going to determine whether my prediction was right or not. And obviously saves is, is something you can predict, but um, I don't know. I, I guess I had three predictions that involved closers, and I, I won't do that again um, for that and a couple other reasons. But, you know, heading into the season, I love Leone and Boxberger as late-round closer targets. Leone had a tremendous season in 2017. His skills were great. Um, he did well with the Blue Jays. Um, and then the Cardinals gave up a lot, uh, Randall Grichuk, uh, namely, to get him. And they were invested. So they were invested, right? And, and he, um, he had the skills. Um, it's hard to remember uh, back to the beginning of the season, but Leone actually started the season as the Cardinals' closer. But he lost it pretty quickly. I remember, I think it was... Uh, was it Yelich or Braun who hit a home run on him to he blew a blew a save right there at the beginning, but he did not pitch well early on. He ended up going on the 60 day DL with an injury, didn't pitch much until the end of the year. So his season was quickly a wash. And although I love Brad Boxberger, he definitely wasn't going to get 65 saves by himself. Uh, Boxberger, uh, I liked, I liked the skills swinging strike rate, uh, coming from Tampa Bay last year. He had closer pedigree, which isn't necessarily something that I look for, except that, you know, the Diamondbacks having kind of stuck with Fernando Rodney the year before, despite, despite some struggles seem to kind of believe in the closer pedigree, if you will, that guys who have a history of closing, um, have some innate ability to to do that and so I like that and then there was also some financial reasons uh, for it Archie Bradley namely you know um, who's going to be salary who's going to be ar- who's either going to be ar- arbitration eligible soon or already is um, would have been in for a major pay increase if he had gotten significant saves whereas Boxy Uh, already had a number of, uh, he'd already been a successful closer. And so that wasn't going to impact him too much. He's also closer to free agency um, than Bradley. So in the end, Boxy did end up getting named the closer, which was really helpful to me because I think I had him in six out of eight leagues. And he got 32 saves. So really held up his end of the 65 save bargain, got about 50% of those saves. The ratios weren't terrific in the end, but at a 300 plus ADP, he was all... 
uh, value. And you had to appreciate that, particularly when it was so hard to get uh, single closers that would get you uh, so many saves. You know, he also provided me with a lot of personal joy for sure. Uh, after every save, uh, I would tweet out uh, the save number and then I'd uh, some sort of box related GIF, uh, which I had a lot of fun doing and um, appreciated folks who, who also appreciated that. He also had a, had an awesome player's name weekend, which was emoji only. It was an emoji of a box and then a burger, uh, which I thought was uh, awesome. So Boxy, thank you for the memories. Uh, I will also uh, recognize those memories with a half a point for the prediction since he did get half of the way there. Uh, he held up his end of the bargain. So that uh, brings us to a four out of 10. Um, I hope you don't, uh, those folks who are listening, I hope you don't quibble too much with my half points here that I'm giving myself. I'm trying to, you know, at least, uh, at least keep it reasonable here. Bold prediction 11 was that Alex Claudio, and yeah, you'll see why I'm trying to keep it reasonable here as I get into my last, my last two. Uh, my bold prediction 11 was that Alex Claudio would finish the, the year with an ERA under two, 20 saves, and strike out more than eight batters per inning. This was a dud, huge dud number two after the Baez one. I mean, I missed some other ones, but, you know, they weren't terrible or, or you actually could have gotten value or didn't lose too much value in going going forward with them. Uh, you know, not nearly as bad as the Baez pick, obviously, because his ADP was over 300. But, you know, Claudio really struggled throughout the year. He had a 448 ERA. He only got one save um, and a 5.4K per nine. So, uh, ugh. Uh, not very good at all. Uh, let's, let's get this one over with quickly. The reason for the prediction is that his skills really had looked nice and there was a lot of metrics, um, that really supported what he had done, um, in 2017 when he had a really low ERA, really nice whip, and he had a really great sinker, um, and that he relied on primarily, but towards the end of, uh, last year, he had started to throw, um, he had a change up and I think it's a curveball both with uh, swinging strike rates above 15%, and he started to throw them uh, slightly more towards the end of the year, and so that's what I was kind of banking on. But Keone Kela was named the, the uh, closer uh, right away, and he pitched well enough to hold the role throughout the year until he got traded uh, at the deadline, in which case Jose Leclerc um, took over and, and ran with the job. Um, Claudio, <laughs> at the same time, I remember... Uh, following him the first week of the season. I can't remember how many earned runs he gave up, but it was literally like after the first week of the season, it, it made their prediction uh, hard to achieve at least the uh, the under two ERA. So definitely an L. So four out of 11 so far. Predictable prediction number 12 is definitely another hard L. Uh, Devin Travis goes 390 runs, 25 home runs, 70 RBI and 10 stolen bases in his first full healthy season. Uh, this is another prediction that died early on the vine. I don't really want to talk about it. Essentially, with Travis, you know, before his uh, his injuries last year, he had a stretch of about a month where he was just lights out. It seemed like things were coming together. And so the thought process was that maybe he could capture that and maintain that for a full season. But that definitely did not happen. So in the end, uh, four out of 12, so 33%. Feel pretty good about that. I think overall my predictions were pretty bold, 
And so being able to get 33% of those right uh, feels pretty good. It's huge improvement over last year where I only got one out of 10, so 10% of them right. I think the key for me, you know, and, and something that uh, I feel pretty good about, and mostly because, you know, when you put out these bold predictions, they're bold and you miss them and whatnot, but, you know, some you know sometimes people take them into consideration when drafting, and these are guys that you're really kind of putting your flag in or pulling your flag out of, I guess, if you're if you're not into them. And, and so in a lot of ways, they are, they are key predictions and key signals that you're sending people to people who trust your opinion about um, whether you like a guy or not. And so what I felt best about is that I was on the right track with the vast majority of guys. So I was able to identify value in players like Chu um, and Rosario, Merrifield, Molina, and Carpenter. And then I was able to avoid some some guys that that wouldn't have that would have been huge value sucks, you know, guys that you would have given up pretty high ADPs for and not gotten much back. And that's you know guys like Odor and Kniebel. And so outside of the Baez pick, where I just missed it badly, um, you know, some of the other misses, you know, Puig again, you know, lost maybe a couple spots when it came to his ADP versus his, his final value. But again, you're filling in, you know, um, and even with a replacement level person, the overall line there, I think ends up being better than uh, ADP. Um, so I feel pretty solid about that. He also got you 15 stolen bases, which in this environment is going to be solid. Um, Hendricks, I feel good about again. He probably beat his ADP in terms of the value that he ended up um, producing at least according to the player radar radar so I feel good about that you know some bad some bad predictions with Claudio and Leone and Devin Travis but those were guys that were going you know 250 300 350 ADP so if you swung and missed I, I apologize it probably cost you a little bit at the beginning of your season but it didn't hurt you too bad to uh to cut them loose and and move on so you know, overall feeling pretty good about the bold predictions, feeling pretty good about the direction they were. That bias miss definitely hurts a lot, but I'm going to try to take the lessons that I've learned from that, apply them in this upcoming next year and, and get 100% on the bold predictions. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, definitely not going to do that, but definitely want to apply those lessons learned, um, hopefully continue to improve as I make these predictions and then just other analysis uh, over the course of the off season. So hope this has been um, an instructive segment in terms of kind of going over to these bold predictions, some of the lessons I've learned, what was my thinking heading in, where, where might, might I have been onto something or not onto something, where I hit, where I miss, and then overall how I did on the projections. Definitely let me know, reach out on Twitter if you disagree with either the analysis or whether I, I gave myself too many half points there uh, to, bo to boost me. Um, please don't. Please don't tweet me about that because I want to feel at least uh, halfway decent about myself here. Um, yeah, so I hope I hope this has been instructive. Hope this has been helpful. Hope if you listen to uh, my bold predictions at the beginning of the year or early on in the year that they were able to help you in some capacity and not hurt you too much. I hope I'm not the reason why you didn't draft uh, Javi Baez this year. Um, so um, yeah, definitely hope hope this was helpful. <laughs> That is going to wrap it up for episode 24. 
of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. I hope you've uh, enjoyed listening. Uh, going to be continuing to bring uh, the podcast over the off season, hoping to keep it pretty consistently at least once a week. Uh, going to continue with uh, interviewing different experts to share kind of their uh, the metrics, the tools, the resources that they're using as they prepare for drafts next year, players that they like heading into 2019, some takeaways from this past year as well. Look for the next one um, to drop potentially as early as this weekend. Also going to take a, a look back at uh, some of my teams and the thought process and strategy uh, I used kind of going into the season, how that played out during the season, how those finished up, as well as looking at the uh, two early mock uh, drafts that Jason uh, Justin Mason uh, pulled together. I was a part of those, and we got to pick uh, 21 or 22, round 22, before um, uh, they ran into some issues. But I'm going to share a little bit about uh, those. I'll probably do that for one podcast. If you do have any ideas for podcasts you'd like me to um, cover, definitely hit me up on uh, Twitter. Let me know. If you have enjoyed this podcast and you enjoy the podcast in general, uh, really do please go to iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Give us a uh, five-star rating. Leave a review. The reviews do make my uh, day. They make my week. I love to hear from people and um, especially when they say uh, nice things uh, about the podcast, um, which I've been lucky enough that that's uh, what's happened so far. Definitely let me know. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I've had so much fun this season. It's been great. Um, I hope your season ended up well, even if it didn't. Hope you had a lot of fun. Hope the podcast, uh, my Twitter was able to bring some value to you. That's really what I'm trying to do. And everybody who's reached out and sent really nice um Uh, nice tweets and and thank yous. I really appreciate that. Can't say that enough. Uh, Really does make uh, a lot of the work. um, I'm putting a lot of work on this um, and it really does make all of that uh, worthwhile. Love fantasy baseball. I'm going to leave you um, uh, with uh, another little snippet from that uh, podcast that will never be uh, published, but another highlight uh, of the day also involving uh, Travis Shaw, who, along with Rich Hill, will forever uh, be in my positive memories when it comes to fantasy baseball. Uh, best of luck uh, with your, all of your off-seasons, with all of your fantasy baseballing, and definitely continue to be kind to one another. Right now, I got another stolen base. Where did the other stolen base come from? I got another stolen base. Was it Marcus Simeon? Who was that? Who was it? Who gave me the stolen base? I just want to know today who gave me the stolen base. I'm up two stolen bases now. Who gave me the stolen base? Travis Shaw again. Travis Shaw has two stolen bases. Holy moly, Travis Shaw for the win. You know, I predicted that Travis Shaw was going to have a huge second half of the season. I loved everything that I saw. Um, Four stolen bases today. Wow. I loved everything that I saw from him. And yes, 